0: I've always been somebody that under, wants to understand why, and I like telling people why things are. I love explaining things to people, and I started off, and I still do, you know, lots of written blog posts. But I have teenagers too, and I look at my teenagers, and I had a hacking competition. Like I was trying to get my son, who was doing computer science, like let's let's do a little bit of the hacker ethos. Like let's build a little project because he was just doing textbook learning, and I was like, we need to go beyond that. And it took me forever to kind of persuade him to like do a little project. And I was like, OK, we'll build like he likes Discord. We'll build a little bot for Discord that tells jokes, right? Nothing too complicated, but it takes a little bit of thing to do. And so the goal was we have set aside one weekend to finally um, do this. Um, I go, I go, you know, I do the research, you know, right? I, I kind of build the bot.
1: Hi, friends, and welcome to this very exciting episode of Leading with Data. Today, I have with me Rajiv Shah, who is currently part of AI and ML strategy function at Snowflake. And he brings an immense experience, both as a engineer, a scientist, uh, he has spent time in academia. So there is so much to learn from him and his experience. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Rajiv, welcome to the show. Uh,
0: Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to talking. Great. So,
1: uh, Raji, uh, uh, before, uh, you know, uh, coming to the call, I went through your LinkedIn profile. And the first thing I noticed there uh, in terms of how you, uh, you know, introduce yourself is that, uh, and I'll, you know, try and uh, recollect it as verbatim as possible. So you said, say that when you were in military, your nickname was the Y guy. And, uh, you know, no matter uh, what you asked, you were always inquisitive and that led you to data science. So can you elaborate a bit on that Why the name came up? And then, you know, how did your journey in data science start?
0: Yeah, I mean, so it started with this observation about myself that I myself didn't realize. It was until people confronted me and pointed out that whenever we give you an order, whenever you ask, whenever we ask you to do something, you don't just do it, Raj. Like you take the time. You always want us to explain exactly why we're doing it. And I was just doing this, like it was unconsciously I was doing it. But it gave me a little bit of reflection after I learned that I engaged in this behavior. That I really care about how things work. I like to understand. And take those apart, and you know, know why I'm doing something in that way. And so, I think you know that part of me is something that's been reflected in both you know my time in the military, but also my journey and my career ever since. Is I've always had this quest for trying to understand things.
1: Right, and uh, uh, obviously, it's a great asset to have when you are in you know analytics and data science and machine learning. But uh, uh, can you share a few? Examples of you know uh, uh, places where uh, you know this this really became a great uh, uh, asset or a great trait as a as a professional.
0: Yeah, so I, you know I I think you know I I ended up here in data science, but I feel like I would have ended up whether no matter where I kind of started because it's a nice place to end up for people that have lots of questions because you have lots of data that's in piles that isn't organized, and if you like to ask questions and understand. The data will reveal that, but it just takes some manipulation and some organizing to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, along my journey, it's been fun for me to kind of, you know, solve different types of problems, kind of where I've been able to use this, whether it's working on things like cybersecurity, where we're trying to track down like the little needle in the haystack of who's acting inappropriately. Um, whether it's looking at things like injury data and trying to figure out, you know, what are the most common? What are the most hurtful injuries and being able to take all these data, this numbers jumbles of letters and be able to tell meaningful stories that actually lead to change. And, you know, that's an important element of being able to care about why is at the end of the day, we need to make action, to talk to people, and people always want to know the why, right? Like, if you try to yeah. make your manager do something, they're going to immediately say, why? Like, we need a rationale. So, being able to bring that using data, using analytics, using models to be able to help with that why is often really important to tell different stories. Great.
1: And, you know, your journey has had a mix of time spent in academia to some of the most exciting organizations, including data robot and uh, you know snorkel ai so so, uh, companies which are really pushing the envelope on uh, ai and ml hugging face and snowflake so so can uh, i mean uh, can you share your story from your perspective and how this happened and and what were those key decision points for you
0: yeah and, and i'll go back a little bit like how i got into this So, you know, when I, data science for me was not a career I studied for. I did not go to undergraduate school and try to learn data science or statistics. This was something that came later to me in life. And it was one of these things that I was looking for a career change. And I saw data science and I was like, you know, I'm good at computers. At the time I was a computer sys administrator. I'm like, I'm good at computers. I know a little bit of programming. I took a few programming classes back in the day. I knew a little bit of statistics. So I felt like I had the raw tools to do this, and because there were so many resources that were publicly available, software and tools that were available through the open source, things like R and Python, I was able to kind of take myself and do lots of little projects and gain confidence that I could use these. Um, I'll give you an example. Like One of the first projects Mm -hmm. I did is I saw a news story about the relationship between crime in Chicago and the temperature. Yeah, as it gets hot, right? I mean, we can feel this in our in our souls, right? Like we all get irritated when it gets hot and stuff. So I was just like, you know, is there a relationship between the two? And so this is one of my first projects. It's still out there on GitHub. It's you know, I did this over ten years ago, but I just looked at the crime data, looked at the temperature data, and just wanted to see, you know, what is that relationship? Just a simple kind of correlation and plotting but for mm-hmm. me right th- that ability to do that was really powerful and it kind of let me know that i was on the right track and i could use these data to solve the problems
1: no. and did you know r and python getting in so were you using python scripts as part of your system administrator thing so good no, to you I,
0: so i you know i started you know this was about 10 or 12 years ago and it was before really the huge emergence of linux and python so this is the yeah. back in the Windows era. And so I was a, a system administrator mainly dealing with Windows computers. So lots of GUIs, things like PowerShell. Yeah. But no, Python was like a weird language at the time that was just at the fringes. It wasn't nearly as mainstream as it was today. So no, I started off by learning R, which I felt like was mm-hmm. really useful if you understand how spreadsheets work. Like it wasn't a too much of a yeah. leap to go into R. Yeah. And then later, I, as, as I moved into learning more of the deep learning technologies, where Python is much more kind of the flavor that you need, I learned Python along yeah. the way there. Interesting.
1: And, and I think uh, given that you learned R first, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, and then we'll discuss this later, your YouTube channel also talks a lot about importance of statistics and then R is uh, at least at that time was way ahead of python and then some of the libraries it had so great uh, to that and then uh, so so when you decided to move uh, what happened next and so so you were doing obviously these hobby projects and exploring these data sets on the side how did you break in into data science
0: yeah and you know I was at a time where data science was still kind of very it was hot lots of people wanted it but it wasn't like today where you have so many courses and so many people. And so by having that portfolio of projects that I did, I was able to use that to kind of leverage and be join the data science team at State Farm, which was one of the first big companies I worked at as a data scientist. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun. There was about 20 data scientists. They just created a new team. They put us down in a, in a basement room and kind of we worked on all types of projects from things like cybersecurity to actuarial. Because right, if you think about it, Insurance yeah. at the heart of it is all about using algorithms and using models because they need to figure out, you know, how long are you going to yeah. live? You know, are you likely to get in a car accident? Mm-hmm. Is your house likely to be damaged? And that's all done, um, you know, for the last, you know, 50, 60 years by classic um, algorithms. So that was my kind of my start there. You know, I, I
1: live in... And special- then how were... Oh, those, how were those days? Because, you know, actually, uh, so actually really a very interesting domain in the sense that uh, uh, it's very obvious that the more data you use, the better model would be and and some of these tools and techniques can be used there. But at the same time, it has its own set and procedures to follow to to do the pricing, right? So so I've always felt that insurance has that, uh, you know, almost sort of conflict between how many advanced tools and techniques to use versus how much uh, you know so how was it for you and then did you also uh, come across some of these challenges yeah i
0: I like working on the actuarial side i like working with actuaries it's a fascinating area where i think a lot of data science a lot of machine learning could still learn from it because it's been doing it a lot longer it's been having to think about kind of working with large data sets it's been thinking about working with regulations making sure we can explain and interpret the models, which has also limited the ability to use some of the latest kind of machine learning models. So sometimes it feels like kind of they're in the dark ages or the stone ages when you when you look at the yeah. tools that they're using, but they're actually fairly sophisticated with those tools like that. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. And so that was one thing where I came in working with actuaries thinking, look, I got the latest greatest tools. Like I've read the latest papers, right? I I know this (laughs) Python stuff. I've got this new Java library. Like I'm going to do better than all this other stuff that they've been using, right? The they used SAS, which is a widely used tool in industry um, for that. But basically, building simple linear models. And I was like, No, I'm going to do much better than that. And they quickly humbled me, kind of with you know how (laughs) well they knew their data and how well they could kind of squeeze the information. Out of it so i think you know it also taught me a great respect in working with that for domain knowledge the people that are on the ground that understand the data often understand the nuances the issues with it that if you just suck down the data and start analyzing it without that you're going to miss out on a lot and i think that's something that we often kind of overlook when it comes to data analytics is thinking about you know who are the person there that's been working with the data for 20 years that wrote the survey form for collecting the data that understands why we co- why, why each of those column names have that name in there, because those people often have great insights into the relationships and why the data is, right? Back to that why story, it helped, they mm-hmm. help understand that. And to be a good data scientist, to be a good machine learning engineer, you need to understand that so you can leverage that the best. You can create the best features or variables based on that information interesting
1: and then uh, after uh, i think spending about two years uh, with state farm you you moved to caterpillar uh, if
0: and for people that don't understand the industries i felt like insurance I was in the dark ages. Like, come on, like, you don't think of an insurance company as very advanced in terms of that. But then when I went to Caterpillar, I realized that insurance, these fi- insurance and financial services are much farther ahead than many other industries in working with data um, like that. And so that was a quick lesson I learned um, at Caterpillar um, there. But no, I mean, Caterpillar had another set of interesting challenges where, for example, they have a, global supply network of literally hundreds, Mm -hmm. thousands of different places that have all these different parts that come together to build kind of an excavator or a truck like that. And it's just a fascinating problem of how to ship and how to get all of these things from the right part or thinking about, you know, should I use a very expensive part on something or should I use a cheaper part that might not last as long, right? These are the trade-offs we have to think about. So there was lots of interesting problems to still... Um, when I was at Caterpillar to work with.
1: Interesting, interesting. And then you, you uh, joined DataRobot, and then fundamentally it's it's a different company, uh, I'm presuming a lot smaller, much uh, faster growing. So so how was that transition? Yeah. What was your role there and, and how were those days?
0: So I was attracted to Data Robot because, you know, i had worked at State Farm, I'd worked at Caterpillar, but. At the time like i could only work on a couple problems at a time and when you go to a company that works in the ai tooling space that you know sells pieces to data science teams like that you get to see a lot more problems so when i was at data robot like i could in the morning i could do healthcare, in the afternoon i could do manufacturing i could do it you know a churn or financial services problem you know the next day or fraud and so Part of it was just the excitement of getting to work with a lot of other machine learning experts. They had lots of top Kagglers, for example, people that win data science competitions working there, um, as well as being exposed to these all these use cases. So it really just accelerated my learning around machine learning.
1: Interesting,
0: interesting.
1: And uh, 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 for you personally, how was that stretch, right? So going from a very structured environment to working across these different sectors different problems and and what were some of the key learnings you've had to to go through this transition
0: yeah it, you know and the, this is where everybody has to decide like what is the type of organization that best fits them for me like you can tell like i have a lot of energy i like to do a lot of different <laughs> yeah. things like that so for me the kind of the simple like hey here's two or three projects do your meetings do your Things you know, clock in at at nine, finish at five o'clock. Like that style wasn't for me. I like to do a lot of different things. I like to stay busy, be very involved, and so working at something like a startup, like a data robot, was much more interesting and kind of fulfilling for me. Where I could wear lots of different hats. Where I could do evangelism. I could, where I'm writing blog posts or writing articles about it. Or, but I could also put my head down and code out a solution and build a model for a customer. I could go do an educational seminar, talk to some executives about how the technology works. And so for me, that kind of interaction like that was just, I, I love that kind of stuff.
1: And uh, uh, I'm presuming because, uh, you know, this was uh, where you spent quite a bit of time, mm-hmm. COVID happened during this period. So, uh, so if you have to, you know, now reflect on, that period, what were some of the key learnings which shaped you as a as a professional and then what are some of the things which you took forward
0: from that period? Ooh. I'm sure tr- I it's 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 not an easy question. I think I learned a lot about mm-hmm. machine learning as a whole, just simply in there. But mm-hmm. that time at Data Robot where I could see lots of other organizations and how people were implementing AI also gave me a very good understanding of like what it takes to actually solve a problem within an enterprise setting. It's not simply Mm -hmm. sitting down with the data and building a good machine learning model. That's only part of what it takes to actually kind of solve a problem and bring value to an enterprise. And I think that was one of the big Mm -hmm. lessons I learned is just the difficulty of doing that um, by being able to kind of be in data robot and see how different organizations were doing different things differently and watching Mm -hmm. all of that
1: yeah interesting and then yeah i think uh, uh, a lot of times people assume that you know if they've worked on a poc or or a model it's that's what goes into production the real life obviously is (laughs) entirely different and then you know in the enterprise context you're uh, adding a lot more complexity to that as well uh Great. and then then you switched from uh data robot to uh, snorkel and uh, so so can you yeah. uh, uh share
0: so data robot was my first taste of being in this industry around tools and so when i left it was kind of at an all time high around kind of building state of the art automl for everybody like that um so it was a great challenge like i had been there from The company, I think when I joined, had about 150 people. And I think when I left, it was like 12 or 1300. And so it had been four and a half years. I was ready for another challenge. And so that's when I moved over to Snorkel, which was building data centric um, AI, which I felt like was the next big thing, because now we have the tools for building lots of machine learning models. But one of the things we quickly realize is it's the quality of that data going into the models has a big impact on the performance of those models and so that's what that snorkel was kind of taking on that challenge of how we can get people to think about the quality of the data going into the models and improving that piece there
1: and and how does uh, the snorkel do that so so let's say compared to a data robot auto ml approach and not necessarily from product perspective but from philosophy perspective <laughs> the philosophy behind the product versus let's say how snorkel was trying to do it how, how does that thinking change
0: so one of the things snorkel was was trying to do was was to tackle the problem that people have lots of data but it needs to be labeled and often the way we get mm-hmm. data labeled is we just put a bunch of humans in a room and we just have them go down and say you know is this a happy review is it a sad review and you just go down but that of course takes a lot of time to have humans do that. And especially when you get to problems, for example, with legal or medical, where the experts cost a lot, it can become very hard yeah. to get that label data. And we know the quality of the model depends on the label data, because if you only have a little bit of label data, your model isn't <laughs> going to be as good as if you yeah. have a lot of labeled data. Yeah. Um, right. So what Snorkel helps out is they have tools this is weak supervision is kind of generally what it's called but they have tools for going from a little bit of labeled data and using a little some automation to label lots of data and then you can use that lots of data to be able to have a better quality model at the end
1: Mm -hmm. interesting so they're using semi-supervised approaches to essentially scale up the labeling part and then how accurate are those in general and then uh, how do you deal with those errors
0: which happen in this labeling data? Yeah. So, the the fundamental way of snorkel working is it's, it's trying to use some a little bit of automation or some rules of thumb. You can think about it to label that other data. Mm-hmm. So, in, there's it doesn't work in every scenario, but in some scenarios it works quite well. And one of the advantages of going through the snorkel approach is you spend a lot of time. Looking at the quality of your labeled data, and so often you can detect errors, identify issues, end up with better quality labeling data because you're spending some time doing that. And I think that's one of the. Of course, you get a better quality model, but understanding like yeah. your your labels distribution, understanding how the different categories inside there is often really useful as well for thinking about your problem. Very interesting. Very
1: interesting. And then you, uh, I think, move from snorkel to hugging face which uh, in a lot of ways is again a very unique company uh, uh driving open source open you know community platform and at the same time you know uh, uh reaching out to enterprises having its own go to market so so can you explain uh, you know your role at uh, hugging face what were some of the key challenges the trade offs between you know community versus
0: your own go-to-market. Yeah. So, so Hugging Face was a company I had been following kind of long before I joined them. Right, They were building kind of this amazing tools er- very early, focused on natural language mm-hmm. processing, text use cases, but then later, lots of other yeah. use cases where with a couple of lines of code, you could build a state-of-the-art, what we call architecture transformer model like that. They just reduced that learning curve down very simply to make that in. Just like when I was a data robot and I liked AutoML for how it allowed lots of people to build models, I saw the same things with Hugging Face. And because they were making their models open source, they were available to everybody. So I was really drawn to that and kind of the, all of the potential there. And so, you know, when there was an opportunity to kind of join that team, I immediately kind of jumped into that um, and joined that. And you know, Hugging Force is is this very special place. It's all about the open source. And so they spend their efforts building out the software, the, the packages, things like transformers, diffusers that people use, as well as providing infrastructure. So this is the Hugging Face hub, where everybody kind of yeah. goes and stores their models. They go run web apps like that. And just using that to create an open source community. And I can tell you there's been ups and downs when I was at Hugging Face. I think about mm-hmm. probably a year ago or so at this point, where an open AI had released ChatGPT for a month or two, and everybody was looking around, yeah. like, like, what is the open source gonna do? Or you look at the open source tools and they were way behind. You know, everybody was like, oh no, is this the new paradigm that, you know, we're gonna be dominated by these proprietary companies, kind of just like we were 10, 15 years ago by companies like SaaS? But, you know, over the last year, you've seen how the open source community has come together where you know, companies like meta and mistral and others have built open source models shared them out publicly and you know hugging face has right been at the center at the heart of all of that whether it's you know the tooling whether it's the legal policy around that to kind of grow that open source community
1: that is true that is true and then i think the contribution again is phenomenal uh, the transformers library which you mentioned right so so Kind of taking all of the complexity and then uh, making it really easy and then doing that uh, i think again and again with different libraries clearly hands up. and uh uh you know while you were there uh what sort of growth did you see and then because this would have been a almost uh uh explore uh explosion of interest and users on the platform. Yeah.
0: So when I got there, I think there was something on the order of about 50,000 different models that were hosted on the Hugging Face Hub. So as of this date around now, I think the number is closer, well over a million models. Some are private, but many are public, that are hosted at the Hugging Face Hub. Um, There's millions of people that come every day to the Hugging Face Hub to kind of use the models, Use the web spaces so just the amount of interest like that has just you know it, it's like a hockey stick it's just grown up in <laughs> grown up um like that and you see it everywhere if you go on linkedin you, you look on twitter threads whatever your social media of choice you'll see many things that talk about hugging face right many posts um bias as well so
1: yeah And uh, then you've now recently joined Snowflake. So, uh, I mean, uh, what is this transition and what would your role at Snowflake uh, is? And then what, what does your day look like?
0: So I decided to join Snowflake because I saw one of the transitions, one of the issues that I had, a lot of enterprise customers that I had was, they needed a place where they could do their AI, their machine learning, that was safe and secure, that was close to their data. And so this is where I kind of looked around and I see, you know, there's a couple of companies in this space like that. And I really liked the Snowflake philosophy in terms of how they were building out things, how they were making things easy to use, but still being able to handle large volumes and being able to embrace the open source. So I can use any of those types of models, you know, within my Snowflake ecosystem to build um machine learning models like that so for me i feel like this is a solution for many companies that are trying to do ai ml but are kind of also snowflake customers is bringing that to them
1: Wow, okay. so uh, in talking a bit about the trends in the industry and the changes which we have seen right so so for you what was the aha moment about generative ai and then what when did you uh cnn any particular instance that you remember which which uh, you know uh, showed the potential of
0: generative ai please. so i had seen you know these models like gpt3 and bloom mm-hmm. you know for a long time i had been slowly introduced to these Correct. two kind of question and answer and summarization models along the way um and you know they were interesting to me but i was just like i felt like there's only a small set of use cases. We need to yeah. kind of do this summarization, and th- the quality wasn't that great. I mean, for me, yeah. I-, I will tell you, and it's a bit cliche, but my real moment was seeing how well ChatGPT worked and how much other people liked using it too. Um, like that, I think you know, OpenAI did an excellent job with building something that really worked for most people. Yeah. While, and I think this is the important thing, including the safeguards there. So that way, the model, you know, it doesn't become kind of racist or kind of, you know, lie to you in obvious painful ways like that. And so they did an excellent job of really setting a very high standard compared to all the previous models that we had there. And I think luckily for all of us nowadays, all of us are now meeting that high standard. And I think the open source has been building models at that high standard. But I think that was a big piece of setting that high standard, showing what's possible. And I think we're still absorbing and trying to figure out all the use cases that we can do with that high standard. I mean, we see some common yeah. use cases like chatbots or kind of question answer systems using things like RAG, retrieval augmented generation. Um, the other thing I think that excites me, and I think will have a huge impact, especially on your audience, are the code generation tools. So things like GitHub yeah. Copilot. I think we are now living in an age where Anybody that's programming, writing code, or even a little bit of code, is going to be using one of these tools um, along with it. And I mean, I can tell you from my personal experience, it makes a ton of difference in productivity. You can also see in the studies that have been done, it has a huge influence on productivity as well.
1: Right. And then from your experience, if you have to put a number on the productivity gain you have seen specifically in coding, what would that be?
0: So the numbers on the productivity gain are all over the place, right? You have folks like GitHub, right, kind of self-promoting themselves saying, right, it's a 50% increase and you have more measured studies showing, hey, by Google, for example, showing a 10% improvement. So I I think the nature of the the, the improvement also differs quite widely for the task, right? Is this something that you're doing Uh that's a repeated thing that is other people have done before. So the code generation knows it versus I'm working on something very unique that isn't in the training data set, so the code generation tools can't help with. But for me, I mean, they're going to have a a big impact. Now, I don't think they're necessarily going to take away any jobs like that. I think they're just going to make us all much faster. And I don't think they're going to take away that many jobs because they're not that good. Like they can do some things, but it's not like you can just give it a task and just let it by itself. do that right if if you do that it'll probably take you know a month of of trying and trying and trying and trying and drive your costs up quite a bit if if you try to have it do something by itself so i don't fear that at all but i think especially for folks that are just programming a little bit during their day where it's not entirely their full-time job it's a massive boost to productivity for those folks
1: yeah that is true that is true and uh, uh so you mentioned these two uh trends specifically one of the key questions and i'm sure this comes up uh, in your day-to-day role a lot more is you know enterprises who want to use ai and ml uh, uh, strategically what are some of the questions or ways uh which they need to answer or address uh, so so let's say you know i'm a large enterprise, and I want to use generative AI in the organization. What do you think is the best way to approach the problem? And, and you know, what are some of the key learnings you have had in the six people?
0: Yeah, so the, there's a lot there. I think one of the things with generative AI is it's it can solve a lot of different tasks very differently than previous technologies. So previously with AI, we'd have discriminative AI, where the models would predict a category, or some type of class is you know is it A B or C or D, with generative these models create information and so it opens up a whole new set of use cases like that. So we can have it for example generate emails for us or generate answers for us. It also Our makes it yeah. It also makes it much more difficult to evaluate then you know is this model doing this correctly, which is one area of it, but also leads to is this model doing something that's inappropriate or that's offensive or just plain wrong that we also need to guard at? So when we go to thinking about doing this in the enterprises, on one hand there's the use cases but there's the evaluation and there's also the productionizing where we have to think about using tools like red teaming where we have folks that actively try to push the model to do things that are wrong. You can think of it like a stress test, because we want to make sure we catch that before we put that out into production. And so I think that's the biggest change for enterprises that are already are doing things with AI ML and are just adding generative AI into that.
1: And uh from your experience on working the, with these, you know, enterprises, so what are some of the common uh roadblocks which they, you know, come across and then what are some of the things which you would want the organizations to think more proactively uh, as opposed to you know coming across the hurdle and then trying to solve it. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, we could be here all day on the roadblocks. I mean, there's many things, <laughs> right? There's right? The, the quality yeah. of data, organizing data so you can have good pipelines, like investing in good data engineering is, is always important. There's the talent gap right now because there's not a lot of folks that are up to speed on transformers and generative AI. Now, it's gotten better over the last year, but I think that's still an issue for many organizations. Have to kind of give their folks a little bit of time to skill up on these technologies, um, as well. Um, you know, there's that. There's the infrastructure and resources that you need. Um, right, many of these models for training require things like GPUs. So if you're already using kind of AWS or you know Azure and you already have access to those, that makes it a little bit easier. If you're totally on premise. That's a real challenge. But we also know there's a GPU shortage. And so I also have lots of people coming and trying to, you know, see if they can, you know, have access to GPUs and that's another um, issues. You know, when we get to thinking about deploying these models, we might've built some MLOps pipelines and some some organization and process around that, but now it's gotta change and evolve with generative AI. Our monitoring solutions have to do that. So like up and down, the, the entire kind of machine learning pipeline, like the, it's causing changes across all of that piece like that.
1: Yeah, that's, true. that's true. And, uh, you know, for people who are entering this domain now, right, there is so much to learn, so much to kind of follow, and, and uh, so much development to keep a track on. What are some of the... Pieces of advice you have for them. How can someone who is just entering this domain keep pace with what's happening in the government?
0: Yeah, no, it's overwhelming. <laughs> the The sheer amount of information <laughs> that comes out, and I think this is where uh, people have to under people have to kind of think about what are their objectives that they're trying to do, and then make sure they tailor that information content to that. So, and let me explain. You know, for some of us, we just want to understand what's going on in the AI industry because we know it'll somewhat impact our job. So we just need at a high level to follow, right? Who are some of the business leaders that are writing about this? What are the trends so that I'm aware of? There's other folks that might be, well, you know, I'm thinking about transitioning into this. Like, I, you know, I've seen this generative AI, I've seen this piece here. Well, then you need to think about kind of a more structured process for learning. And one of the things I often caution people is follow that structured process like don't read every paper don't read every blog post like that like it's good to have a little bit of that but you also want to learn the basics and the fundamentals of how machine learning and ai works and then plug in the latest advances because the reality is, is there's like 5000 new papers every day every every year on archive like 2 years from now we'll be talking about two or three of those papers and that's it so don't get too stressed out by you know all the incoming information The good quality stuff will stick around. You'll learn that. So just start by learning that other older good quality stuff and you'll be fine um, like that. So I think that's, you know, one of the main lessons is don't be afraid to say no and to turn it off a little bit because there is just an overload of information
1: right now. That is true. And, uh, you know, you also run your own YouTube channel and then some of the videos there are really interesting in the way you bring out some of the challenges and then, uh, you know, importance of knowing statistics and, and some of the fundamentals. So, so what was your, you know, motivation behind starting this YouTube channel? Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, how do you see that? Uh,
0: so I've always been somebody that wants to understand why. And I like telling people why things are. I love explaining things to people. And I started off and I still do, you know, lots of written blog posts, but I have teenagers too. And I look at my teenagers and I had a hacking competition. Like I was trying to get my son who was doing computer science, like, let's let's do a little bit of the hacker ethos. Like, let's build a little project because he was just doing textbook learning. And I was like, we need to go beyond that. And it took me forever to kind of persuade him to like do a little project. And I was like, "Okay, we'll build like he likes Discord. We'll build a little bot for Discord that tells jokes, right? Nothing too complicated, but it takes a little bit of thing to do. And so the goal was we set aside one weekend to finally um, do this. Um, I go, I go, you know, I do the research, you know, right. I I kind of build the bot and kind of do that. And then I ask him how he's doing and he's like, "Yeah, you know, I, he's like, I didn't get very far. I got stuck. I was like, well, okay, like let's pull it up, you know, see where you're at, and I'll, I'll help you, you know, un, unstuck it. And he pulls it up, and what he pulls up is a YouTube video. And for me, this was mind blowing. Like, I I'm used to going to text and following text, but even yeah. something like a technical walkthrough of like how to set up this Discord bot, he was watching a video, and it just. You know, at that time, I'd already used TikTok a lot. I kind of share lots of videos with my kids on like TikTok, so it just pointed out to me that you know the world is really changing and evolving on how people learn, and so this really pushed me to I really want to understand video, and so I decided to focus on building lots of short videos, and then figuring out you know, if I'm talking to my son or you know somebody in that kind of group of people, like what's the best way to send a message about, you know, these various little nuggets of machine learning. And so nowadays I focus most of my time making kind of very short videos. I do some longer videos and some blog posts, but typically I do these really very short videos where I try to be, you know, a little bit of education on the machine learning, but also a little bit fun and keep it entertaining. So people want to absorb it. You don't always want to just sit and listen to a lecture um, like that. So I've had a lot of fun um, posting those videos like that
1: yeah and and what have been some of the key learnings you've had? So so if you have to you know create a uh, or or you have to share, let's say a message, how would you do it today differently compared to, let's say when you started?
0: So one thing I've done is I've left up a, a lot of my videos, and now I've been doing this for two years and and I can see in myself how I've very much improved the quality of the videos in terms of how, yeah. I, how I can communicate um, that back. So I think one thing for people to do is you get better with practice. It, it's just, whether it's coding models, whether it's making videos, just go do it. And of course, it's gonna be awful. You won't understand it the first time, but if you keep at it and you keep getting better and you keep putting in the time, you'll get better at doing it. Um, so I think that's been an important lesson for me. It's just the repetition, getting better and better, getting the muscle memory, understanding that you improve like that and then i've just gotten a little bit it's forced me to get a little bit better in terms of thinking about how i communicate in concepts where you know for social media for example it's important to have a hook something catchy that grabs the person's attention right away it's important to have not a lot of fluff in your talk but to get straight to the point like that um it's important to see where when you can add a little bit of humor Right. Like that, like people might <laughs> like to smile and laugh, you know, as they listen to something. Yeah. So, you know, adding those in. So, you know, I've learned a number of lessons like that along the way. Good.
1: And just tricking, uh, your brain on, you know, if we have to think about AI creating these short videos, right? Mm-hmm. So, so th- let's look at it in two layers, right? One is just creating a consistent video for, let's say under a minute. Yeah. Uh, if you have to put a time frame on it, what would it be uh, when when would it be like uh, really possible and then you know bringing in that creative element which which is where I'm presuming you spend a lot of time what's the best way to give that message how to bring in some humor how how far is that according to you <laughs>
0: Let me see, are you trying to ask, like, how long the production of the videos takes like that? Is that what you're getting at? No,
1: no. I'm saying uh, uh, how long do you see when AI can start coming up with, oh, you need a one-minute video? Just give me a few prompts, and I'll I'll create a consistent video for a minute for you.
0: So the AI is doing amazing things with kind of multimodal AI, with converting voice uh, or converting text into voices or creating taking your text and using things like stable diffusion creating images or videos like that like i have already seen other bloggers doing that where they can write a blog and automatically kind of make a video that you know gives the transcript of that and so those tools are all getting easier to do i think where the ai stumbles upon is it's not it doesn't understand the material And so for example like it can't be very humorous with the material like it'll make some some obvious jokes but it doesn't really understand what's going on and so i think this is the the limitation so if you're just looking for something to do transcripts the ai is really good at just kind of regurgitating out the same Mm -hmm. but the humans still at least for now have the advantage in being able to kind of tell nuances and little edgy things about the content i will tell you I use AI all the time when I write my skits. I take my draft of my skit and I give it to ChatGPT, and we have a little bit of a conversation back and forth because I want to identify there, you know, any weak points, any things that are unclear. Are there easy opportunities yeah. for jokes? You know, was there some gaps like that? So I use AI when I actually build these videos, but I don't think we're at the Fair. point where it'll be fully automated um, anytime soon
1: yeah okay great great thanks uh for sharing that and uh just want to spend a few minutes on you know some of the future trends which yeah. you see right so let's say over the next few years what are some of the things which you see evolving developing how do you see the next few years coming out
0: yeah it's always tricky when you're kind of doing these types of predictions but <laughs> yeah. i mean uh, I mean, I think one of the biggest trends we're going to see is the ability of computers to better understand what we want. So a simple example of that is when you talk to ChatGPT, and I think there, there was a, I saw a video the other day of somebody just having a rambling conversation, a rambling statement for 30, 40 seconds, but ChatGPT was able to understand what she was able to send, send and give an answer like that and i think we're going to have this ability to take how humans often talk, right? I got lots of speaking ticks. I got they say extra words, right? I don't actually get to the point. I'm in a long ways around. But these models are very good at being able to decipher that and get to the core of what we want. And so i think one of the things we're seeing will more interfaces and more places where we can go from a little bit of this unstructured world to being able to give a structured result. So One answer, one thing is like a question answer that you might have with ChatGPT. Another thing is, is, hey, I need to draw. I need to program a program that plays Space Invaders and it does like this, and you get the program. Or, I'm working in a design program. Hey, I want to design a box that looks like this, and then you could describe it. So I think more we're going to have a movement towards interfaces that are more human because these models have a much more nuanced understanding of that. So I think. That's one really large trend to do. But also at the end of the day, I still think we're going to be using Excel. <laughs> we're still going to be you know, <laughs> using things in Excel. <laughs> we're still going to be kind of building models and looking at plots and doing all those things like that. Like that stuff isn't going away. Like learning those skills, yeah, yeah, yeah. learning, learning how to kind of generate data with SQL. Like that stuff is still going to be relevant and people are still going to be doing those sorts of things like that so don't think the world is radically changing and you don't need to learn that stuff like that stuff is going to be relevant for much much longer so
1: yeah it's it's actually fascinating uh you know i i started my career with excel as the main tool yeah and then uh, you know sas came and became more popular and then python came and became more popular and at all times, you know, there was this way that you'll not need Excel now. And then, and, you know, uh, and in fact, I think there is a generation of uh, data scientists who, who use Python as their first language versus Excel. But uh, especially, you know, people who get used to Excel, it's it's it's, it's the place to go for any quick and dirty analysis. So that's that's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, Raji, usually towards the end of the show, we ask a few rapid-fire questions with with our guests. So uh, what I want to hear is, you know, the first thoughts which come to your mind okay. <laughs> on the questions. So uh, any any particular book which you which had a big impact on you, any uh, uh, specific book
0: which you remember. So there's a couple of books. So I, mm-hmm. I read Feynman's books. I don't remember the exact title, but him as a physicist and how he interplayed life with understanding science was was one of those. So the autobiography
1: books. which he had written, surely you must be joking. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, so that book had a profound, um, and then there was another book, The Lies My Teacher Told Me, which helped me understand mm-hmm. that some of the things that we think about as conventional wisdom aren't necessarily true and to, that it makes sense to sometimes dive a little deeper and there's often more interesting stories there so i think those are two of the things wow. that have had a lasting
1: effect of. interesting and what would be a, a, a interesting let's say hobby project or side project to pick up today if you have to or if you want to rather
0: I mean, I I always encourage people to to, to pick out their own kind of side projects. I mean, for me, I spent a number of years doing sports analytics. They have basketball Mm -hmm. tracking data that was available where you could watch the players as they move around the court. And so for me, it was fascinating to be able to kind of track the movement of players, build analytics based on that.
1: Interesting. And are you someone who prefers, you know, staying up late at night and then working through your projects? Or are you wake up
0: early and then go through i'm actually i like to get up early in the morning and because i like to exercise so if i if i'm going to do it i have to kind of do that early so i'm a much i get started early in the day and then what happens is you know middle of the day evening i kind of drift off a little bit and then usually maybe i can do an hour or two of work depending on what but i always have to just do the fun stuff in the evening i can't do regular work it has to be something that can takes my mind off
1: a little bit so interesting and uh, if you were not uh, in data science and ai what what other career options do you think you would have explored
0: i mean i like being a professor uh, that's one piece of that uh, i was in the coast guard in the military for a while and the job that i liked is of mm-hmm. course another kind of why related job is i liked doing the uh, they called it a quartermaster but it was the navigation so you'd be up on the bridge, wow. looking at the maps and charts, but you were figuring out where the boat was going to go, right? Like you could decide on <laughs> that piece there, and so that was fascinating for me as all the tools to measure and figure out exactly where the ship was to plot to go to the next place. Like that's that's a thread that's endlessly fascinated me as well.
1: Wow! Great. Thanks, thanks, Tajik, for sharing those you know fascinating insights, fascinating stories, and then your perspective about ai ML. And I think tons of learning. So thanks a lot for
0: uh, taking
1: time out from your schedule and sharing this with
0: us. Thanks so much for having me. So.